Before we get started, a quick disclaimer. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, Portfolio Manager at Rangely. And with me as always, my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris Demuth. Uh, today we're going to start by talking about some issues over at Google, and then we're going to move on to some the small cable channels that you don't really watch. Uh, you're paying for them, and that might change in the near future. So Chris, let's start with Google. It's been kind of an interesting week for them. There's been just a ton of advertiser backlash over the past week from... Uh, you know, stemming from them, to Google displaying ads next to what they're calling inappropriate content. And this has ranged from fabricated news stories to kind of, you know, the, the type of race, the type of really racist stuff that people that's becoming a little bit more. I don't want to say mainstream, but that's been in the news a lot recently. And uh, some extreme examples were uh, terrorist recruitment videos is kind of what really broke this story open. Uh, I think it was L'Oreal. They displayed a makeup ad before a terrorist recruitment video and somebody broke a story that said, hey, this is that terrorist recruitment actually gets a cut of the proceeds from that ad. You're literally directly funding terrorism. Uh, you know, we've talked a few times on the podcast about how fake news and viral tweets are a real issue today, but kind of wanted to have a little free-flowing conversation about uh, Google's issues with displaying ads next to all of these things. So I'll turn it over to you. Uh, Google's, the, I mean, the biggest case is Google and YouTube, because it is such an example of spontaneous mm-hmm. created content. I love the idea of sponta- spontaneity, and I love the idea that society can completely organize itself uh, horizontally. I think YouTube is a spectacular, wonderful thing. The amount of money people can make just out of things that I would never guess in theory that anybody else would have interest in, but that hundreds of thousands or millions of people have interest in, I think is great. And we, we mentioned on the podcast before, like uh, PewDiePie, I'm not sure if we mentioned mm-hmm. this specifically, but I think he made like 20 or $30 million uh, last year. And uh, similar to this issue, Disney had to pull, uh, Disney pulled their advertising from him mm-hmm. when he made some, I, I believe it was some off-color anti-Semitic jokes and Disney pulled their funding, but you know, very much in line with this, especially spontaneous user-created content is very hard to control if you're doing brand advertising with it. And we're seeing the problems of a lack of intermediary authorities. But I have to say, we've just gone through certainly a century that I'm kind of aware of conversant in, and I imagine a lot longer, where many of our problems were with Mr. Big, the central intermediary that told you what you could or couldn't accomplish. I mean, how many creative voices said, well, I have to now, I have to go sleep with the record producer or do something to get past that intermediary now that record producer has to uh, kowtow to the creative people and and i think this is a hugely wonderful thing uh but at the extremes uh what if something is offensive uh uh i i i would stipulate that offensiveness is a characteristic of the listener not of the speaker uh and that in a free society uh, in terms of offense uh the answer for the most part should be who cares uh, at the extremes, I have a very different concern with some of these videos. It has nothing to do with whether or not I'm offended. It has to do with whether or not I'm endangered. Yep. Perspective violence is a special category, even when speech should be protected. It, 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 it uh, goes past the significance of your privilege with your lawyer and your doctor. Uh, if, I, yep. if I say, uh, and I'm not saying this, I'm not even going to say it because I don't want to be quoted as... But if somebody says something about perspective violence, I think that that is more important than any concern about speech. You're saying you fully support... 
we don't support them, but you support the right to free speech for somebody who has very controversial views. Very controversial. But we don't support the the right to free speech when it starts saying, hey, I'm going to attack this person or endanger this person's life. That Absolutely. Takes, so I think the area, you know, I don't think anybody's going to find that controversial. The area I kind of want to dive into is more the fake news type story. Yeah, that's, that's... Because I think that's where you're getting to the morally gray area. And my question to you is, you know, is this advertiser pushback on trying to... Cause, one of the things they're certainly trying to push back is not just getting removed from the terrorist videos, but not having their brands associated with this type of fake news. Mm-hmm. Is this pushback on free, fake news, is this part of the free market's way of dealing with fake news where if there's no advertising incentive to go out and make fake news that gets a lot of views, even though the content isn't real, if there's no advertising, then there's no incentive to actually create that. So what, the, what do you That could be the better, more effective solution. Uh, I would think the theoretical one has really been tested and is problematic here. I would say, well, uh, the best disinfectant is light and that if something is a lie, then it can be uh, battled with the truth. But the truth is uh, often less entertaining. It is not getting as many clicks. Yep. It's not getting as many thumbs up. And it's a lot more subtle. I mean, I think that if you look at the content of a lot of the dishonesty, the fake news, the lies out there, uh, it tends to be in a specific category, which I would define as emotionally cathartic. It tells you, hey, Andrew, I just want to let you know everything you thought was more true than you thought it was. You were right utterly. Your enemies were wrong completely. And it's kind of a full-time celebration of the rightness and the total depravity on each side of their enemies. And so uh, this kind of thing, you can catch it right away. I mean, I think it usually looks incredibly stupid, but it uh, it, it is much more popular than anybody who tries to walk it back. You no, know, you, you're right. You can catch it right away. But then my issue is like, I'll see it and I'll, I'll want to know like, how can someone believe something that crazy? You know, like the there was the Pizzagate fake news and all mm-hmm. that sort of stuff. Like, I'll always wonder, like, where where are they getting the facts for these? And you can kind of go down a rabbit hole trying to fact check them. I, I, it's just a, a very strange issue. Um, I think that the uh, advertisers are... Uh, right. I mean, I have actually on both sides of this with publications that I've been involved with and with companies I've been involved with on advertising kind of ping things that I thought, oh, well, you know, this isn't about free speech. This is simply about what you want your identity to be associated with, which I'd hope and expect for most organizations is a much, much higher standard uh, that, that it just it just seems incongruous. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, now, the flip side is if you look at a lot of the um, kind of psychological research around where people are most susceptible to buy goods and services, it's not always positive stuff. I mean, people who are uh, emotionally churned up can actually be more susceptible to advertising. Uh, So it's not all, it's not all, um, these companies are going to want to be very careful. It's not all virtue that they want to uh, promote. It reminds me of the story, and I don't think we've talked about it on this podcast. I don't know if you've heard it. Uh, Target, they used to have such good data on their customers that they would know that people were pregnant kind of before they did or before their family did based on what they were buying. And sometimes they they sent some advertisement to some uh, guy's daughter, and he absolutely flipped out. He was like, my daughter's 16. Like, I can't believe you'd advertise this filth to her. But it turned out she was pregnant. He just didn't know. But, you know, the reason that people send so many advertisements when they're pregnant is it's an emotionally charged time and people change their habits during emotionally charged times and that it that is just catnip for consumer packaged goods companies and consumer goods companies to get that opportunity and like you're saying emotionally charged fake news is very emotionally charged it gives them an opportunity to kind of sneak in and get them to buy something 
on emotion that they normally wouldn't try. Spend a little extra money, try a new product. So I think you're a hundred percent correct on that. The world is coming to an end, and since it's coming to an end, and you only have a few days left, you might as well buy my product, which you can see over here on the side. Exactly. Uh, uh, you know, I just want to touch real quick. So. Uh, part of the story is a lot of advertisers are going to push for more more metrics from Facebook and Google. They want more metrics. They want to be able to use third-party software to kind of spot-check Facebook and Google's metrics. Uh, and Facebook and Google have always pushed back saying, no, we give you the metrics. They might give a little bit more, but they're not going to allow third-party software is their thing. Uh, you know, it's pretty clear. More clamp down on where you can advertise, giving more uh, more metrics Higher cost, less admin inventory. That's not great for Facebook and Google. Where do you think it kind of balances out? Uh, these big advertisers, you know, having people on both sides. You know, you have the uh, WPP, you have the big individual companies like P&G who are able to really push back, uh, give them a little run for their money. I think that uh, there's reasons to be skeptical. I, I'm a big proponent of the third party uh, data gathering. It's kind of just like auditing. I mean, if it's true, they should be able to see it. Um, and I think that there's a lot more information that can be given. And I think that the ad side of this is going to get uh, is, is going to get a, a little more sensitivity. Yeah, you know, I, I'm 100% with you there on the third-party metrics, but Facebook and Google, at this point, they control well over 50% of the market share for global advertising. They're where all the eyeballs are. They're kind of a duopoly in terms of online advertising. And they might just say to all these advertisers, like, if you don't like it, okay, walk. Like, somebody else will take it because this is clearly valuable advertising. This is clearly valuable stuff. It sells products. And if you're not going to do it, we'll just give it to someone else who will. So you can see the proof kind of in your sales, I guess, is what I'm saying. I'm, I wonder if governments are going to have to step in and say, these are two big, giant online monopolies. You know, this is probably, they're probably more powerful than Microsoft was in the 90s. I wonder if that's something that needs to be looked into at some point. I, I think that, uh, Google, uh, Facebook, Amazon, and it's interesting if you look at some of the personnel who's coming in in uh, the Justice Department more than the FTC, but uh, senior people in this administration, I think, are going to be looking carefully at this kind of thing, uh, whether or not I like it. Uh, and uh, these will be real issues. Um, you know, not only duopoly, but boy, even more so if you look at the ad budgets with really good data, I would like it to be even better. But what are they going to say? You know, go post it in the Tribune. You yeah. Know, what, 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 you know, you know I, I'd have a hard time arguing that it's, it's just spectacularly better than it was 10 years ago mm -hmm. or than it was before they were there. So, yeah. All right. So I, I think uh, we'll probably be talking about this in the near future. But let's move on to the small TV channels that you don't pay for. So for decades, the number of TV channels on the cable dial kept rising. You know, I think uh, the last time I checked my cable channel, I had like 150 mm -hmm. channels or something. Uh, but, you know, as consumers are kind of revolting against their cable bills and saying, like, hey, why do I need this when I can get an internet connection and Netflix? Uh, a lot of giant conglomerates are kind of rethinking their channel strategy. We're hearing a lot more about the skinnier bundles where people are – to try to keep people from cord cutting, keep them to pay something for the major channels. And you're seeing a lot of conglomerates starting to cut down on those excess channels. Uh, NBC is shutting down their Esquire network. Uh, Viacom, we've talked about them a lot before parent company of MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central. Uh, they're narrowing their focus from two dozen channels to six core networks. And we saw some quotes that said insiders say the first thing to go are going to be excess channels like MTV uh, Classic and, you know, like 
ESPN 8, the Ocho, would be on the chopping block for ESPN or something. Uh, there were some stats in here that we can throw out there, but I, I kind of want to turn it over to you. you know, what do you think about the cutting of all these excess cable channels? I think it's great for consumers. I think it's going to increase. Uh, my sense is not only do you have Netflix um, and Amazon, uh, but you have Netflix, Amazon, and then uh, as you have uh, the devices at home, um, where uh, people can order very uh, specific uh, uh, shows. Uh, my sense culturally is somebody mentions a show and you think, oh, I'll, I'll check out that show. And I don't watch that much television, but it's dominated by friends who mention a one-off show. I, yeah. I couldn't even tell you other than once I've ordered it on the introduction, what channel it was mm-hmm. on. Um, and so most of these channels I've never seen and the ones that I have seen. So, so it's going to be uh, skinnier, more bespoke. It's going to be really hard for these cable companies to keep uh, uh, forcing people into dozens and dozens of channels that they don't watch. Yeah, Look, I think that's a great point. I think 150 channels was great. It gave you a lot of choice when you couldn't stream something online because then you could say, oh, I want to watch a Friends rerun. It's always on one channel. I can probably find it somewhere. You can probably find the reruns. But when you can watch Friends anytime, why do you need a channel that's running Friends, that's built on Friends reruns? And, uh, you know, the article mentioned that these channels that were basically rerun channels, they were insanely profitable because there's no cost there. Mm-hmm. All you do is hire a rerun. Just show it on air, and if you get paid a penny or two per person who subscribes to the cable company, they were mentioning 50, 60% of these crazy types of cash flows. Uh, it's a great model, and I think it's dead. I, I have a friend who was a senior officer in the first and second Gulf War, and he said in the first one, they almost never hit what they were aiming at. So you would just kind of carpet bomb an area. Mm-hmm. You just have hundreds and hundreds of things, and like one would work. But by the second, you'd almost always hit what you were aiming at. And so if you hit it once, you don't need... Lots and lots of efforts. Uh, uh, And I think this is kind of, you know, we had the carpet bombing of television channels. And now I just, you know, hear often from you or one of my other colleagues, uh, something that somebody liked. And I just go and order that one thing. I was listening to a a podcast with Netflix's CEO. And he was saying, look, a couple years ago, we tried broad, like kind of brand Netflix advertising on linear TV. And we spent millions and millions of dollars on it. And then we kind of figured out like, each person likes their own types of TV shows. Like what we want to do is we just want to sh- advertise to them specifically with the type of TV shows we're making that they like. So, you know, if you like a dystopian sci-fi type show, we'll just advertise directly to you on Facebook or Google. The yeah. companies will advertise directly to you and that's your Netflix that you're going to get. We don't need to brand build for Netflix and advertise, you know, one of like the kind of old, older comedies like The Ranch or something. So. My, my wife and I have a joke back and forth. The internet doesn't know me where we go, where we find uncanny ads that are targeted at us specifically. <laughs> so it'll be someone, usually attractive young woman on a... If it's an attractive young woman, the internet knows you. <laughs> on, a, on, a, on a specific model of a truck that I like that's, you know, like 50 years old or something. And I think that's just amazing how they come up with that. Uh, but, but I mean, they really can target incredibly specific to the aesthetics and interests uh, uh, and, and they know what you're going to want to watch before you do and their suggestions are often good and so kind of just paying as a subscription for a channel that you rarely watch I think is going to be a uh, it looks to me like an inventory issue of an incumbent conglomerate that's going to disappear over time and, and you know just on the pay like if every if you're getting uh, a little bit of something from everyone, as in the old cable mm-hmm. channel model where you put out VH18 and you got paid a little bit of something. 
equality doesn't matter that much, right? All that matters is you manage to work your way in the network. The cool thing about a Netflix is they're, you're paying them $10 out of your pocket every month directly. That is your choice, yeah. not the cable can- channels kind of negotiating for a broad path. That encourages Netflix to keep up the quality and keep producing good things. If they stop, you cancel your money. So I, I think it's much better kind of incentives aligned there as well. Now, I was reading about this issue uh, coming into our conversation today. And uh, one thing, though, I do think some of it missed was they were saying, oh, these smaller channels by uh, by uh, viewership could be in a lot of trouble. There are some that actually have really good revenue. Uh, you know, golf is one thing mm-hmm. that's always been really good revenue, uh, even though there are a lot of people like me who don't particularly care about golf at all. Uh, and uh, so, so that there, there will be... Uh, very these kind of specific target but, audiences that have pretty good but those revenue. are channels that have niches with uh you know very popular very passionate niche bases yes those are channels that are going to make it because even if they get cut people are going to find a way to go find them whereas something like nbc's esquire channel it, it was just an out there channel that they managed to negotiate into the package that's something nobody cared about so i think you need to have something really good quality or good quality that people are really passionate about and then you can survive in this world and Mm -hmm. i think that's increasingly what we see anyway uh i think that's all the time we have for today i'll give you last thoughts if you have any anything else oh long writers i think that we had this really low point of the carpet bombing was kind of reality tv point a camera Mm -hmm. at a bunch of people on spring break and now uh the best hollywood writers are going to be super employable in the future that is more bespoke more targeted oh netflix you know they're buying more content than anyone's ever seen before Mm -hmm. and if the quest for great content is Netflix versus HBO versus FX versus a ton of people, you're exactly right. Great writers are going to get paid, and that's going to be great for us, for consumers. The the best, they can serve us all with uh, great stories. All right, so let's wrap it up there. That's all the time we have for sure. today. Just before we hit our disclosures, a quick reminder. If you like this podcast, the best way to get more is to recommend us to a friend and get them to start listening. You know, having more listeners really encourages us to keep doing this podcast, keep taping more of them. So we appreciate it to everyone who has been recommending us. Uh, Chris, disclosures, none for me. Any for you? None for me. Okay, perfect. We'll talk to you guys later this week.